if your visual experience is fairly unusual, then at least that gives you more informed consent and the possibility that maybe if you took psychedelics, this kind of these kind of effects might be ramped up. This whole issue has to be treated with such delicacy. It's been like almost a bit of a political decision for me in, in terms of like, you know, should I use the HPPD label? Like, it seems most people have maybe heard of that, but it's a label I don't even agree with. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Enough time at Coachella or UC Berkeley, and eventually you'll hear someone say that psychedelics are some of the safest drugs around. Well, hold on. Safety is relative. Vitamin C is pretty fucking safe, but you can overdose on it. More than two grams a day can give you stomach cramps and diarrhea. Ascorbic acid toxicity, as it is known, can also disrupt the antioxidant prooxidant balance in the body. So even something as benign as the stuff in oranges can harm you if you take enough of it. You can also drown in about two inches of water. Okay, okay, so compared to car fentanyl or a bottle of Everclear, psychedelics are pretty safe. For example, in 2018, a study in neuropharmacology reviewed the safety of psilocybin, the main ingredient in psychedelic mushrooms, using the eight factors of the Controlled Substances Act. The researchers found, quote, some level of abuse potential, which I fucking hate that phrase, but whatever, and potential risks, but that, quote, psilocybin would be appropriately placed in Schedule 4 of the CSA, a category of drugs that includes Ambien, Alprazolam, or Xanax, Tramadol, and Valium. What that means is that some top scientists, who it must be noted are trying to help develop psychedelics into pharmaceutical drugs, so some possible conflict of interest there, these scientists are arguing that psilocybin isn't exactly risk-free, but it's not as dangerous as heroin or meth. Okay, fair enough. But psychedelics do come with some risks, including some long-term effects on perception in the brain and a small number of users. And it feels appropriate to talk about these risks when people like Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas, are among the folks suddenly investing in the corporate psychedelic space, which is somehow already worth several billions, despite being a relatively new industry concerning something still highly illegal in most places. So, how do we parse these risks with the real benefits that psychedelics provide? I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Today, we're going to be talking about hallucinogen persisting perception disorder, also known as HPPD. And rest assured, this is not going to be a scary episode designed to keep these drugs illegal. At Narcotica, we deeply believe that prohibition amplifies the harms of drugs, but we're not blind to how drugs can also be destructive. It's just a little bit of nuance. I hope you'll bear with us. But first, here is our one and only advertisement. Up front, I want to say that Narcotica finally has merch. We've been talking about it for a long time, but you can finally get some stuff to support the show. You can go to narcocast.myshopify.com and pick up some cool t-shirts or a coffee mug that says, this has drugs in it, because caffeine is a drug too, but I've been drinking wine out of mine. Almost all of the designs were done by my wife, Ryan Gray. She has put a ton of work into them, and they look fucking rad, if I do say so myself. For a limited time, you can use the code NARCO10 to get 10% off of any purchase. Everything is at narcocast.myshopify.com, or you can simply go to narcocast.com and click on shop in the corner. And here's a little more about this podcast. We are listener-supported and ad-free. 
You're not going to hear from us about which psychedelic stocks to throw your money at. And we're not going to try to sell you a new diet pill. We have one goal, and that is to get accurate, compassionate drug policy reporting out to the masses. If you would be so kind as to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash narcotica and join nearly 70 people who help keep us on the airwaves. All patrons are entitled to free stickers, which are personally mailed to you. Plus, you can get a code for 30% off of our store. Uh, just go to patreon.com slash narcotica or narcocast.com to learn more. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We'd love to hear from you and hope you're enjoying this podcast. It's unbelievable to me that we have more than 70 episodes on everything from alcohol to kratom to salvia to psilocybin to meth to vaping and much, much more, and plenty on opioids and all the peripheral problems that come with the war on people that is dressed up as a war on drugs. And that's it. Short and simple, just a little bit of important info on Narcotica. Now onto the show. Our guest today is Ed Prideaux, a master's student in psychology at the University of East London. With a background in journalism, Ed is currently focused on researching and addressing the problems, possibilities, and questions raised by hallucinogen persisting perception disorder, or HPPD, a broad, under-researched, and not entirely uncommon condition in which people experience sustained and distressing changes to their visual perception, among other effects, after psychedelic trips. Ed has lived with these visual effects for nearly seven years and is affiliated with a nonprofit launched last year to promote harm reduction around HPPD called the Perception Restoration Foundation. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you, Troy. Thank you for having me. You know, this topic sort of reminds me of an old Vice article from 1998, um, back when the magazine was very different, titled, uh, A Guy Who Was on Acid for an Entire Year um, by Christy Brandnox, uh, which is, according to Reddit, uh, a pseudonym of Gavin McInnes, um, which, like I said, the magazine used to be very different. Um, this is an interview about a guy who took so much acid that he was tripping for an entire year. And I'm realizing that was probably describing HPPD. Um, so what is HPPD? How common is it? And what is it like to have it? Um, and how do you feel about the name? Because I know a lot of people in the psychedelic scene resent the term hallucinogen because they feel like, Psychedelics don't even give hallucinations. They give perceptual distortions or whatever you want to call it. Right. Yeah, it's funny. We hear that Gavin McInnes used to write for Vice. Well, he used to... I mean, I watched a documentary recently about when they first moved to New York, he, Shane, and Saroosh Alvey. And it's so strange that that guy was involved in the operation. Uh, what is HPPD? So HPPD is... It stands for Hallucinogen Persisting Perception Disorder. And that's the name given in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic statistical manual uh, for basically in, in terms of the DSM-5, a psychiatric condition in which people take psychedelics and they report changes in their visual perception that are at least reminiscent of psychedelic visuals after the drugs worn off. Now that is, uh, it's a bit of an iceberg because in, in the DSM-5, um, they describe these visuals as necessarily the re-experiences of what you experience tripping. The idea being that the visuals of the trip just don't stop. And whilst that's uh, is partially true, people will, particularly if they enter the same rooms or expose to the same stimuli as they were during a trip, it might genuinely, re they might genuinely re-experience some of the same visual phenomena. So in, in my experience, I remember, I, so I used to, in my high school trips that set off these weird experiences, uh, I used to trip out in my <laughs> parents' lounge. And, I, when I, and for, to this day, Basically, if I look at that same wall, you know, that I listened, I used to listen to the Beatles Wipe album on 
and that wall will still melt. Uh, that's those same carpets, those same Indian funky carpets that my mum uh, so appropriately selected for the interior design. Uh, they will still have some like sort of faint geometrics on them. So, but on a more general level, these visual effects don't have to be necessarily what you experience tripping. They actually exist, although this isn't recognised in the DM in the DSM five on a far broader spectrum of visual effects that you can have as part of other mental health conditions, as triggered by other sorts of drugs. And, and also as a, as a sort of contingent feature of normal visual perception. So one of the main symptoms, so to speak, of HPPD is a phenomenon known as visual snow, where your field of vision is sort of coated with these fine sort of particulate-like grainy dots, almost like little bits of snow. Kind of, kind of like the, when your TV is on the... I guess that's not really something that TVs do anymore. They're right. smart now. But yeah, I, that that weird graininess. Yeah, and that graininess, that graininess can be experienced. I mean, a lot of people. Um, I remember telling my sister that I experienced this visual snow effect, basically, basically constantly. Uh, and she was like, and then she looks up at the sky and she goes, "Oh, I see that as well." So I think that it's something that people can can see, or maybe it's it's just uh, we just know that with HGPD for many people, it's the the noticeability is increased. And that might be because its actual intensity on an absolute level has been increased, but it might be because with HGPD, there are a number of different theories that will probably vary from individual to individual, but it might be that basically the psychedelic experience set off uh, almost like a sort of anxiety fixation condition in which people might be, at least, at least partially, attending more anxiously to visions that they maybe experienced before. Uh, but because the psychedelic experience is by itself, or at least to the Western mind, very, very visual, you, you, you're going to be paying attention to weird visions more anyway. Uh, but we can get on to the different hypotheses of HVPD later. But um, so yeah, visual snow can be experienced, uh, as I said, as a contingent feature of normal perception, particularly in the dark, or if you look at blank surfaces or the sky. But with HVPD, it seems to be far more intense for people that report the condition. I mean, I certainly don't remember experiencing these visual snow effects uh, myself but other effects um things like halos um around objects kind of like a sort of brilliant white bleaching around the perimeter of an object um you can experience a ghosting where you'll look at a text or an object and it seems to have a sort of faint almost like cloud effect around it but for me the most prominent effect is after images where if i look at an object and look away I'll see a sort of whitish, uh, ghosty um, replication of the image, almost like a, like a silhouette on elsewhere. So, you know, back, back on it, my HGPD, so to speak, was at its most intense. You know, I would be, you know, in, I, I described this in this Madden America article I wrote, where I'd, you know, be in the lounge with my parents watching TV and I'd look over at my dad and look away and there would be a full, detailed, multicolored after image of my dad just hanging in, in the middle of the air. And it was uh, pretty weird to experience. Uh, for me, another symptom that is pretty common is tunnel vision. And, and this actually synergizes with another condition that co-arises very commonly with HVPD called depersonalization, derealization, basically a form of dissociation. Uh, and tunnel vision can be experienced in dissociative states anyway. But it seems that the HVPD and the, and the DPDR, as it's called, can sort of really synergize with experiences of tunnel vision. So uh, for example, if I'm talking to someone, it's not uncommon for 
the sheer act of focusing on someone's face and kind of attending in a concentrated way to the conversation for a sort of tunnel vision effect to occur where I then feel like I start dissociating. And um, on the DPDR topic, I I saw a particular survey of 26 people. Um, It's a problematic survey because all of the uh, people surveyed had prior mental health diagnoses and all of them had like poly substance abuse histories. So, but nevertheless, 90% of the sample had DPDR, this dissociative condition, as well as HPPD. Um, But perhaps the most striking findings of that survey actually were the levels of anxiety, depression, and suicide ideation, which are not uncommon people with HPPD. I'm thinking in in a very sort of roller coaster roundabout way, but I suppose one of the most important things to emphasize is that these visual effects aren't necessarily distressing. You know, I'm friendly with a couple of people in, in the States who have very intense post-psychedelic visual effects. I mean, that one guy I'm friendly with, I, I met him in, in India, actually, and we, we reconnected lately, and he was telling me about, oh, yeah, man, I constantly see rainbows. I constantly see, like, geometrics everywhere. And this guy loves tripping, so he just, uh, he, he's happy with it. He's, he, he's happy to have the free trip. Um, and it's the same with another guy that I'm friendly with who uh, lives in Berkeley. He loves his, he loves his LSD. He he has these same sort of visual effects, but for reasons you can probably expect, um, these effects aren't loved by everyone. And it's when it's distressing, and it's when it impairs your quality of life. That's when the HPPD diagnosis is actually given. Um, so that, that's a very broad overview of what HPPD can sort of encompass. How how common is it? We really uh, don't really know much about its prevalence. Um, I suppose the first thing that comes to mind is a 2011 survey. It was done by Matt Baggett as part of his PhD work. And it was done together with uh, Fire and Earth Arrowwood, the people that run Arrowwood. And this was um, a survey of, uh, I think, two and a half thousand psychedelic users recruited via Arrowwood. And you can have doubts about the representativeness of this sample. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is that 62% or something of them had reported trying salvia before. So, and I don't think 62% of the normal drug using, psychedelic using population tries salvia out. Yeah. And another thing about surveys like this is that, you know, if you're having a problem with these visual distortions, you might be more uh, likely to respond to one. But that is a pretty large sample size. So that's 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 encouraging. And I've interviewed uh, Matt Baggett. So I think he does some pretty good critical work in the psychedelic right. space. Um, I think Matt is a, is a great voice in psychedelics today. Um, but I suppose um, to get into the findings of the survey, it was that um, I believe it was 25% of this 2,500 people had reported some experience of a lingering vision effect after psychedelics, but that seemed to be permanent. And I believe that three, although obviously they can't tell, they haven't lived their whole lives yet, whether it's permanent, but it seems to be like this is long lasting, 25% a long lasting visual effect. And I think it was three quarters had experienced some form of lingering visual effects. Uh, And then 4.2% of the sample, which is one in 25, had experienced lingering visual effects that were bothering them to such an extent that they were considering going to a doctor. Uh, So one in 25 is actually um, pretty high. And I'm not sure what to make of that particular statistic. It, it wouldn't. It would generally wouldn't surprise me if it was near accurate. And it, it's cited in the DSM that that figure. Well, I don't take the DSM that seriously. 
But uh, in terms of uh, my general interactions with people in the psychedelic community, it seems that some experience of a change in visual perception is fairly common. And I think that the fact that these these effects aren't talked about too much, and that can be for a number of reasons. Uh, what one is that I suppose that at the at the most abstract level, it's not it's, it's stigmatized to talk about weird visual effects you see because having visions yeah. is associated with madness. You know, I went to well as an example, I, I went to the Psych Symposium, which is this event in London uh, a couple of days ago. And I went, uh, my, my dad's office is pretty nearby. I went, I, went, I went over and I was chatting to his colleagues and they asked me, oh, so, so how did you get into psychedelics? And generally, despite the fact that HGPD is like my job and my primary focus, I could not bring myself to tell these, you know, these like middle-aged payments people about HGPD because it's intrinsically, it's, it, it, it brings a lot of prejudice to tell people that you, you live in a sort of quasi-visionary world and then not least because it's an effect of drugs i mean you could and the drug stigma is a really unfortunate one i suppose maybe later on we can dive into hgpd's overlap or association with flashbacks um yeah i did want to get into that because i mean i think it's it's almost taboo to say anything negative about psychedelics right now and there's because of this fear and you hear this from scientists too that the um, we're going to go back to the 60s or the 70s. It was the 70s when everything got banned. And they they don't want to see research on these really fascinating chemicals get put back into another black box. But this is such a fascinating topic, because and it's, it's controversial. And that's sort of what's interesting about it, because it is so subjective. The psychedelic experience in general is subjective. The fact that there are even um, sort of parallels between trips, that people have sort of these different similar experiences has always fascinated me the the, the the similarities more than the differences but when you're talking about these perception uh, issues it's it's so much to unravel because you can't go into someone else's head and experience what they're seeing or what and and i've experienced some lingering visual distortions but i wouldn't call it hppd i it's and it's hard to say if this is before i tried psychedelics or after or if it's just like floaters or whatever like so many different things Vision in general is sort of a hallucination. It's uh, our brain taking in all this information and just like uh, it, it has to strip away a lot of it in order for it to make sense to our brains. If we were to just like take in everything, uh, I, I hope I'm not just rambling, but if you were to just take away everything, put everything into the visual uh, stimulus, and I'm not an expert, so if I sound a little unscientific here, if like people can we'll put some resources in, in, in the in the thing. But the point is, is that it is very complicated and subjective. But this is different from flashbacks. This is the urban legend that if you take something like LSD, it can get stuck in your spine. And then one day, randomly, you'll just start tripping again, like at your nephew's baptism or something. You know, you, you <laughs> can we explain the difference, though? So because I don't want to confuse people. Yeah, you're right. It's um, it's it's a very complicated topic, and uh, I'll I'll quickly address the name before I get to the overlap with flashbacks. I think the name, frankly, is is terrible. I mean, a there's the issue of the the hallucinogen description, which at the at the very least is a bit antiquated, and I suppose reflects the 20th century drugs of abuse NIDA context in which 
HPPD was sort of developed and codified as a diagnosis. Um, but I suppose the, the whole, you know, something I didn't even get onto was that HPPD experiences are not purely perceptual. Uh, well, A, there is the issue of the fact that d- dissociation is so common and so synergistic with these experiences that it almost, it's a symptom of the same condition, so to speak, it seems overwhelmingly. So the condition's nominal focus on perception uh, seems to be at the very least imbalanced. And then the idea of persisting, as I've said, this isn't necessarily a condition of persisting psychedelic visual effects, as if, as, as I said, as if the trip hasn't worn off in some sense, because you can experience very similar visual effects, if not identical visual effects, after taking SSRIs or, uh, or as a lingering effect of benzodiazepine withdrawal. You know, I got contacted by a guy on Instagram who told me that he basically has HPPD from withdrawing from Kratom. Uh, so it basically seems to be a broad syndrome that is triggerable through drugs. But then we haven't even got onto this other condition called visual snow syndrome. Because so, so, so with HGPD, you can experience uh, the visuals, the, tini- um, the dissociation, but also tinnitus and neck pain, uh, certain like bizarre body sensations. Like you ever, you ever meditate and you might feel this like sort of chi, like sort of energy sort of kind of, kind of effect. You can also experience that in trips. And that just seems to be like ramped way up and in weird ways for people who, who are experiencing HGPD. Uh, so it's a, a, a very complex, multimodal syndrome so to speak. And there's this other condition called visual snow syndrome, uh, which is currently, it's not in the DSM, but it's in the, um, I believe the international classification of disorder, the diseases, the ICD, I believe it's called the WHO's manual. And uh, basically it's exactly the same. Um, you know, you've got the very, very similar visual effects, dissociation, tinnitus, somatic effects. And this is triggerable through all sorts of things. I read of a guy on Reddit, who triggered his visceral snow syndrome through getting a Nerf dart in the eye? I don't know how. That, wow. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. I, I heard of a guy who uh, went to a hot yoga class. Also found his guy Reddit, and he put a towel on his face, and he came out with full blown visual snow syndrome. Other people they might get it from antibiotics. Um, after a very bad migraine, people can trigger this. So. Um, Basically, my suspicion is that for at least a lot of HGPD experiences, these would be better identified as a drug-induced version of a very broad syndrome that can be triggered through non-drug and especially non-psychedelic causes. Yeah, it's very interesting. And that's part of why I'm so interested in psychedelics anyway, is because it does bleed into all these different areas of science and what is consciousness and what is reality and all this other stuff. So, um, you know, and I do want to be clear, you aren't saying psychedelics are bad and that they should be illegal or we shouldn't research them. You aren't saying any of that, but uh, this is a real phenomenon. This does happen to people. I think it needs to be talked about and addressed and it should sort of be a risk assessment. Um, you know, when you're, when we're talking about bringing psychedelics more into the mainstream out of clinical trials and, um, is, is there like a test for people to know if they have the condition before taking psychedelics or anything like that? No, we don't. We do. That, that's one of the issues with HGPD. Well, a is that you don't want to assume from the outset that all visual effects are bad and that if you somehow test as if you're likely to develop them, therefore you shouldn't trip. Because as I've said, we don't know of the, of the percentages here, but 
clearly a non-trivial proportion of people who experience these visual effects aren't distressed by them. But that might also be because their visuals aren't that intrusive. I mean, some people almost get the sense that they can't possibly reframe or enjoy them. I mean, I've spoken to a handful of very severe cases of people who have been like genuinely severely impaired. Like a, a guy I spoke to who experiences constant strobing in his vision, like constant geometrics. And that seems basically like hell. Yeah. And I, you can love LSD like it's nobody's business, but I'm not sure that anyone could like that. But anyway, um, no, I, I don't support, I, I'm still basically sympathetic to psychedelics. Uh, so it's obviously these experiences have given me uh, a, a mixed perspective but and in terms of a test for hvpd that's one of the problems yeah as well as you don't want to assume that these visual effects are necessarily a pathology you also we don't really know that much about risk factors it seems that some people can like take lsd dozens or psychedelics of all kinds dozens of times and then never develop an effect of this kind but other people i know of at least two people who developed their hvpd after microdoses um but we, but in terms of possible risk factors, I think that the basic controls of a good psychedelic experience play in here. Like the set and setting, bread and butter sort of stuff. Because it's, I mean, there, there was one paper that looked at this by Torsten Passy and John Halpern. And they interviewed, I think it was 20 HGPDs in detail. And they found that, I think it was basically all of them and developed after a bad trip. And for me, it was a very mixed trip and particularly one where I hadn't slept afterwards. And like, and like the, the container for my brain and my experience in general to reset and renormalize was very compromised. And I think that that's a common finding amongst people that develop HGPD is for example, they'll be at a festival and they'll perhaps take, take a drug two, three, four days in a row not sleeping right. And I think that that really, especially sleep, really affects the ability for your visual system to reset in a healthy way. So I think that making sure that you minimize the risk of a very difficult or bad psychedelic experience and then really kind of watch yourself and look out for yourself in the days afterwards, because I, I think, the, you know, I don't need to tell you, these are very, very powerful compounds. And that's something that I think that I've kind of learned over, over time. When I was at university, I kind of treat them like toys to an extent. And it was just, and, and one benefit of getting older is being realizing, nah, this is actually powerful stuff and you really need to look after yourself in the days afterwards. But in, in terms of a test, yeah, there, there have been a couple of exciting developments in this realm. The first is that, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to tell you this, but I'll do it anyway. Uh, that basically, uh, I believe a preliminary first draft of a visual processing tool which has been developed by researchers at the university of melbourne um it will be released shortly and basically what, what this involves is there is some tentative research that suggests that people who develop lingering psychedelic or lingering visual effects after taking drugs were a high likelihood of experiencing some visual effects before they ever took drugs uh, so this further suggests that this isn't the persisting perception necessarily triggered by hallucinogens implied by the diagnosis. So for me, for example, from the age of 13 onwards, I was experiencing uh, flashes of purple in my vision, especially in the dark. 
And um, with the idea with this visual processing tool is that you can basically take this test online and you can work out kind of where you're situated on a spectrum of, of visual effects. And perhaps if you are, if your visual experience is fairly unusual, then at least that gives you more informed consent and the possibility that maybe if you took psychedelics, this kind of, these kind of effects might be ramped up. But there's also another sort of hypothesis, or there's, this is published, it's all this kind of sort of speculation of HPPDs, that you can almost have stages of HPPD as your use of psychedelics kind of increases progressively. So the idea is that maybe someone takes uh, a psychedelic, registers in the visual processing tool, takes it again and has another go. And through various tests, they can work out objectively because it's, it's always impossible it's, it's always very difficult to work out objectively just through reference to your own experience what's changed because it's always you know day to day but um yeah so the idea is hgpd is rather than being a truly discrete condition at least for some people it could be something progressive it could be you know you look you could you compare one year today to one year ago to one year ago today and you think oh shit my mind my, my visual perception is completely different and that might provide you at least some caution about whether to take more trips. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I want to talk about what you were mentioning, that sometimes maybe this can be triggered by uh, using psychedelics in a way that's, uh, well, I'm not trying to say like abuse or anything, because I hate that term, because you can't abuse a drug, in my opinion. Um, it's not able to feel abuse. But, um, you know, if you're using LSD for three days in a row at Coachella or something like that. And it you don't give your brain or your body time to sort of rest or reset. Yeah, I can see that sort of making it so that these effects can get sort of stuck. Um, and I think one thing we didn't really mention is that sometimes this, this does fade for people over time. Yeah, yeah. Which is important because... It sounds like hell for some people. Sometimes, okay, yeah, I can get kind of used to this or I can sort of navigate. It depends on the severity, it seems like. Um, and, uh, you know, I did want to bring up this study uh, that came out in January in uh, psychopharmacology, which we talked about over email. Um, it's from Matthias uh, Lychee's lab. I always pronounce his name terribly. He, he's associated with MindMed. So they're doing a lot of LSD clinical trials. And he presented this data from... 142 healthy subjects enrolled in six double-blinded placebo-controlled randomized crossover studies. Uh, 13 out of 142 subjects reported reoccurring drug-like experiences. LSD was in seven. Psilocybin was in two. Uh, both was in four. Uh, none of the subjects reported impairment in their daily lives, and none of the cases met the DSM-5 criteria for HPPD. And like, I, I agree with you what you were saying. is like I don't give a lot of credit to the DSM-5 either. Um, it's an important tool, but I think it's not the only tool. It's interesting that this is even in there. Um, but so let's talk about this data a little bit because this is coming out of a clinical trial. So, or, or a bunch of clinical trials. So maybe it's not that surprising that nobody seems to have developed that because these were controlled conditions. You know what they were taking for how long, what it was combined with. They do all kinds of screening, all this other stuff. So what what is your opinion on this uh, study here? I think it was uh, it's reassuring. I suppose there are, there are always maybe this is just me, but there's always a sense of mixed emotion because you want because especially if it's something you've experienced and that HPPD is treated at least historically with it, some denialism, especially on like Reddit. You know, a lot of people kind of gaslighting you. You you, you want this to be treated seriously as an issue. 
Yeah. So there's always uh, a mixed emotion of, A, I'm very glad that no one has developed diagnosable HGBD. But also there's a sense of, there's almost an impulse of, which you've got to watch out for, for like, you almost want it to be taken seriously as an issue. Uh, so you almost want, uh, it's, it's, it's hard, but, I suppose, but I suppose, I'm glad, but I, I don't want these sorts of data to therefore be cited in a simplistic way. Right. This is the odds. I don't, I don't want these data to be like, Besides the future news piece, it's to be like, oh, HGBD doesn't matter. You know, it's never appeared in a clinical trial. But at the same time, yeah, I think it was basically very reassuring. And I was glad. And I think that it obviously corroborates the idea that the, the nature and quality of your psychedelic experience, knowing your dose, knowing your drug, having a control set and setting, aftercare, uh, integration, et cetera, clearly contraindicates, if that's the right word, or counteracts the possibility of developing HPPD. I think that another interesting thing was that it's kind of been taken as like a, as folk wisdom that LSD is the one most associated with HPPD. Like that's going to be repeated in the literature constantly. But then I think that I believe as as matters of proportions, I think it was psilocybin. I think it was actually. I think they also covered the experiences of people who've been given MDMA. And as a matter of proportion, those with MDMA or I might be getting this confused. Basically, LSD was not top. And maybe psilocybin was like, was first, if that's right. And people had like, and, and historically there's been the sense of that psilocybin causes this less, which I never could quite see a reason why. But, um, but yeah, I think that I don't, I, I honestly don't know what the relevance of HGPD will be in the clinical world. I think that in the clinical trials, uh, I, I hope, and I'm fairly optimistic that this won't appear particularly Although it's worth mentioning the Power Trip podcast because one of one of the participants was it was it was it all they all from Maps Canadian trials. One of them had ex- developed powerful, which they were alluded to in the podcast, powerful psychedelic style after effects mm-hmm. from the MDMA, and this was not disclosed in the trial write up. And that brings to mind another thing, which is I, I don't really have any evidence to back this up other than things I've sort of heard without corroboration in the grapevines. This might be total bullshit, but I've heard kind of from people that patient concealment of adverse events isn't actually that unheard of. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's called Hawthorne effects. It's, in the, it's technically. And I would be not that surprised if people had developed lingering visual effects in general, lingering visual effects that distress them in ways that haven't necessarily been published at the very right, least. Right. Um, and then I suppose the, where I think HCPD or the, this issue might flare more is if and when psychedelic therapies are like more approved and rolled out and developed at scale, because I'm concerned about you know, the possibility of uh, sort of corners being cut, uh, lack of true aftercare, basically cost-cutting. And then the fact that we don't truly know what the risk factors are means that there's a sense in which HGPD is a, I'm hesitant to use this phrase, but it's a bit of a, a minefield. Yeah. Like for example, I, there's, there's reason to believe that HGPD develops particularly among those with, on the autism spectrum because people on the autism spectrum are more likely to experience a visual phenomena, unusual visual phenomena. Uh, I saw a paper recently where, in which people with autism spectrum disorder are basically who are distressed by the intensity of their unusual visions which overlap on the, with the HGPD spectrum totally, are given the same GABAergic drugs as some HGPDers. So you can actually treat the visuals of both 
same drugs. Uh, and another thing is that people with autism um, are more likely, I believe, to have to be disembodied and therefore dissociative. They're, they're generally more sensitive to sensory data. And then another interesting thing, which and, and this is all stuff that I think will be fascinating to study, is that the nature of autistic visual perception. I think that I'm, I'm not an expert in this literature, but there's some reason to suggest that people with autism are more likely to sort of focus on small details in their in their vision, as opposed to like a grand, as opposed to the the the, the larger visual field, more likely to attend to specific visual details. And I think that I think that definitely predisposes towards. HCPD experience of sort of, not- of just noticing a lot of you know, after images and noticing the visual snow. So I think if, as, as, as an example, yeah, people, have, I'm not sure there's been much study at all, if any, on the particular effects of psychedelics among people with autism. Yeah. Or, I mean, I, I've seen that there is more energy behind psychedelics for people with bipolar disorder and this is, I think historically, this has been excluded from trials. But, you know, you've got to, I suppose that at a certain point, these criterion will be relaxed. And I, and, I'm, and, I, and I do worry whether as these criteria relax, or at the very least, we're in, in deployment, um, if there's oversights, uh, more people will develop this stuff. But, I'm, I'm, but, but I think where HGPD will most flare is in the sort of population adult adult use context and i'm particularly concerned by the 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 modern phenomenon of people being encouraged by headlines about fantastic mental health effects being encouraged to trip off their own back because i i believe that speaking very loosely there will be an association between any form of mental health background and the likelihood of developing hppd and the idea of people seeing in a headline and therefore getting their hands on two or three grams of mushrooms. I think that's a, a scary context in which HGPD will be made more of an issue. And, and I hear story, and I'm not an expert on the on the ground situation in somewhere like Oregon but, or Oakland, but I've, uh, I've heard from a few people in Oakland that there isn't much emphasis at all on harm reduction there. And that there are a lot of like sort of, I suppose a lot of fantastical evangelical distributions of, of psychedelics which and I, and, I, and I do believe it's fairly plausible that people will you know end up in in the cracks i mean i'm I, I, this is hearing from this is speaking to, to psychedelic therapists based in oakland and they've told me that they're kind of overwhelmed with the number of people that come to them after being just freaked out with bad trips and some of whom have hppd i'm not going to go so far as to say this will present any form of like public health crisis but i think that it's well, they, they have shared that they're concerned about an actual possibility of a risk in public health. Um, but yeah, that, that's where I think that, that those are my thoughts uh, in a roundabout way from that paper. Yeah, that's a really good insight. And, you know, um, I, I just want to really emphasize that, uh, you know, this is coming from MindMed, basically. They kind of have a vested interest in saying that these drugs are safe and they don't have a lot of side effects and all that stuff. And I'm not arguing one way or the other in there. I think we definitely need more data, which is why I think it's really smart um, that you're studying this uh, because it, there's a lot of gaps in this information here. Um, and it is also just 142 people as sort of small, even though it's in six double-blinded studies. Uh, there's been a lot of clinical trials on this stuff. And, you know, which ones did he include? Which ones didn't he include? 
And the part about it being double-blinded is so interesting to me because it's very, very difficult to double-blind a psychedelic study. You take a drug like this, you pretty much know if you got the placebo or not. Um, because there's, there's ways that are really interesting in, in some of these studies of how they're designed. Um, like I know there's one in Brazil where they gave subjects ayahuasca and the placebo was just this dirty water that tasted just like ayahuasca but didn't have any DMT in it, um, which just sounds really funny. You're making these people drink this disgusting crap and then they don't <laughs> they don't trip. Um, you also give people um, uh, niacin, uh, which is vitamins, vitamin C, I think, yeah. And it kind of makes you flushed and feel a little bit like a head rush. And you're like, did I take the MDMA? It, you know, it, there's, but it's really hard sometimes, especially with a drug like LSD or psilocybin, which can be very apparent. You know, you're taking this and it's in you. So you, people who take this are in these trials, a lot of times they know whether they got the placebo or not. And there is this tendency, which isn't talked enough about, um, for people in these trials to not want to express negativity. Uh, they don't, they, they see all these headlines, they see all these amazing stories in the media and like outs or like mainstream boring media that covers like, you know, house and garden stuff. And then they're suddenly doing an, ep uh, an article on 5-MeO DMT or something like that. And they hear these, um, you know, amazing stories of transformation and healing and dealing with these psychiatric stuff. And I think psychedelics can do all that. It's definitely been very helpful for me in that department. I can only speak from my own experience. But when you get all these media narratives like that, and then you get enrolled in one of these clinical trials, you don't really want to be the outlier that's saying, oh, well, I've been having these long-term visual distortions. I've been it didn't actually help. I mean, they help a lot of people, but not everyone. And if we want to help everyone, we have to also include some of the more negative stories. And it's doing it in a way that's not saying, oh my God, we got to keep these in schedule one with all these other dangerous drugs and we shouldn't study them and people that have them should go to prison for a long time. None of that. But we also have to like kind of like talk about the things that we don't know about and, and have some healthy skepticism, I think. Definitely. It's, uh, I 100% agree with everything you said. I mean, I wanted to mention 5-MeO-DMT. You mentioned this because this brings to mind another issue with HGPD is that, you know, whilst in that Likati study, there didn't seem to be much difference at all with psilocybin, MDMA, and LSD. I think 5-MeO does seem to, pose a particular weirdness for these experiences because there's this phenomenon known as the reactivation phenomenon where people at least subjectively describe a complete re-experiencing almost similar to the classical flashback after 5-MeO and it seems there's something special about this drug um you know I saw a particular survey which suggested I, I can't remember how many participants there were and obviously and, and these will always be problematic and issues of like self-selection. Uh, but I think it was 69% of the sample 5-MeO-DMT users believe at least of one particular delivery method reported reactivation phenomena. When you look at reactivations on uh, Reddit, I, I think it's just you know, dozens of people report reactivations weeks, months after 
the experience. And, and you know, it, it does make sense that a drug like 5-MeO-DMT, which I've never taken, but it does seem to be extraordinarily powerful, might, might have a particular risk factor, at least for the, de- the distressing kind of and re-experiences. And I suppose that, again, that brings to mind that the, the label of HGPD is so broad. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the label for just a second. What would you call it? Because I mean, there's a lot of labels in mental health that are just fucking terrible, like ADHD. Like that doesn't really describe. I've heard people want to call that um, executive dysfunction disorder instead, right. EDD, which I think is a little unfortunate because it's a little too close to ED, erectile <laughs> dysfunction. But it makes more sense than attention hyperactive, whatever. I'm blanking on it now, but. Uh, because it's more of an issue with executive dysfunction. I have ADHD or EDD or whatever we want to call it, but like, it's not that I'm like I'm hyperactive all the time. It's that like, there's a part of my brain that I can't tell to focus on things if it's not interesting. It's it's it, and it's more and more complicated than that. Um, but the labels we give things are important, and I don't know what you'd rather call than HPPD, but I don't know because. That every boundary you draw will be problematic. Yeah, it's it's that's the part of the problem with the DSM five in general is it's sort of pathologizing a lot of normal human behavior. Like addiction is sort of it's a sort of a rational response to a lot of things, uh, which we we don't get into. This show has covered that topic so much, but I feel like DSM five just sort of pathologizes this normal human behavior puts everything into a box and if you don't fit into that box you know it's there's it's problematic to do that it's the way that we think about mental health in general i think should be a little bit more nuanced than just which category do you fit into oh it's a spectrum so you're sort of on this part of it or whatever you know let me have a think about that one (laughs) i mean we don't have to come up with a name right now it's just i think that's important for listeners to sort of understand that it's like we don't have good data on this. We don't even have a really good name for this phenomenon. And we need to study it more. We need to be like, not telling people that's, I don't, I'm not ever going to tell people not to do a drug or to do a drug. Just make your own decision. I just want to give people the information to do it safely so that they don't hurt themselves. You mentioned autism too. We did an episode last year um, where we talked to people who are autistic and psychedelics have really like opened up a new way of perception and help them contextualize their mental experiences. It's not a cure for autism. I don't think psychedelics are really a cure for much of anything, but they can treat some of these things and at least give you a different perspective. So, I mean, that that's something that people should be really cautious about. What this really all underlines is that uh, we have a massive mental health crisis in this planet right now. A lot of people are suffering, and they're seeking out treatments whether it's legal or not. And like you said, like these, these psychiatrists in Oakland that are feeling overwhelmed or it's because so many people need help. We just went through this pandemic that was extremely traumatizing. I don't think a lot of people have processed the trauma from the last two years and we're still sort of pretending that it's over. We'll see. I'm not going to talk about the pandemic right now, but that was a really rough experience for most people. If you somehow got through the pandemic without some mental scarring, (laughs) good for you. Uh, For me, psychedelics got me through the pandemic. Um, Like when everything was being locked down two years ago, took some drugs, felt 
connected to the whole world, felt some peace and inner love and all that shit, right? Helped me get through all of that without killing myself. But because so many people are having this mental health crisis or, or crises on top of crises, there's so much going on. People are seeking this stuff. There's going to be a lot of different people that are going to be opportunists. They're going to sell them something that's not what they say, or they're going to give it to them in an unsafe way. Or there will be even um, people in therapy or clinical trials or uh, what are these ketamine clinics that are popping up at a strip mall near you. Um, there's there's just going to be a lot of room for shit to go wrong. Where to start with that? But I think something I really want to talk about is the right, kind of the role of neurophysiology in HPPD. We you know, well, when's this conference on Wednesday? This, this psychedelic conference, it attracted uh, people like Christian Angermeyer and George Goldsmith, uh, you know, all the sort of big names in psychedelic capital. And what was the biggest red flag about the event was just the strictly neurobiological terms in which they described experiences like depression and anxiety, making out that these were basically diseases of the brain. Mm. And I think that there's a, there's a sense in which people misunder they, they underestimate the clear role of social norms and culture in, in making HPPD experiences distressing. Because as I said, a lot of people experience these effects and they aren't distressing. Um, and, you know, clearly there's a role for some form of neuro, neurophysiological change. If you've taken a powerful vision-altering drug and it's altered your visual cortex, maybe fine. But the idea that that neurophysiological lens, you know, that is the that explains the whole disorder, the, the distress included, is, is not the case. I mean, as, as I mentioned, there's the huge stigma around any form of unusual visual experience, which means that as a whole, they're under-discussed. I mean, I saw a particular survey uh, that this isn't visual, but it's illustrative anyway. I saw a particular survey which found that 10% of people have some form of regular voice hearing. And that's, that's, that's extraordinary to me. And the idea of hearing voices, like, that's almost archetypal of you know, being crazy. Um, this is, and I think that HVPD, with the, the image of the brain damage that HVPD is apparently completely reducible to, that, that is really not helpful. I mean, for, for me, I, a lot of my distress from maybe 17 to 20, when these effects were at their most acute, was the sense that I fried my brain. And that's, that's another a classic anti-psychedelic meme, isn't it? The idea that psychedelics actually fry your brain, like they actually, and, and then to, and there's almost a sense in which that brain frying imagery is then transplanted into the scientific, scientific explanations, the idea of overexciting the visual cortex, as if there is a, a norm of excitation that's desirable, um, and then which you've then exceeded. Um, and then I think another issue I wanted to raise with HGPD is, is very similar to, ADHD in particular in this respect is the idea of mental health culture basically just going nuts on things like TikTok around sharing and, and, and almost there's almost like a contagion effect if you go on TikTok, like everyone diagnosing themselves and everyone diagnosing each other. Uh, and and HEPD, I think there's a sense in which there's a risk of that too. I've never been officially diagnosed. I, I think that, that it's only a, a tiny minority of people that have truly been diagnosed with this by a clinician, I think that there's a risk in which, I mean, recently there was a bit of a controversy in the HVPD community because a particular HVPD patient messaged me to be like, oh yeah, you guys should go on Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and you should raise the alarm by HVPD. 
And, you know, there's a sense in which maybe he's right. Maybe, maybe it is important to raise awareness about this disorder and maybe it could create the groundswell for more research and energy into these experiences. But at the same time, I don't want to go on Rogan or Free, Lex Friedman just basically, you know, sound the alarm to millions of people because you could almost give people, th- this is what caused the controversy is when I said you could almost give people HPPD through this, through a simplistic narrative about visual effects after psychedelics because a some form of visual effect in the three to five days or after a trip is actually seems to be not that unusual like the idea that you can still see you know your your phone melting the day after a trip that seems fairly normal to me and then psychedelics obviously they they enhance your suggestibility for at least a day or two afterwards and so i'd be very concerned about the possibility that i basically induce people into beliefs that they've developed HPPD, you know, basically freak people out. And so that's why this, 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 and, and in that sense, you, and through suggestion and, and, and cycles of fixation on visual effects that are perceived as abnormal. And that's not to disqualify that these experiences are obviously very real and they, they can have reality beyond the suggestion. I think there is a risk in which you can almost infect people with HPPD through improper use of labeling and communication. Uh, and that's why this, this, this whole issue has to, be, has to be treated with such delicacy. And it, it's, it's been like almost a bit of a political decision for me in, in terms of like, you know, should I use the HPPD label? Like, it seems most people have maybe heard of that, but it's a label I don't even agree with. So I have to use it in a kind of like very utilitarian way. So it's a lot of problems. And I suppose the, the, another thing I wanted to mention is just which kind of ties all this together is... Uh, the problem with mental health conditions in general is, is the way in which we individualize them, it seems. Um, and if it's an issue of uh, society, culture, our norms around drugs, uh, our norms around visual perception and madness, then this is a truly, uh, this is far bigger than just an individual taking a drug and altering their visual cortex. And I suppose actually, the, one, one other thing I wanted to mention was, you know, the, the use of label a lot of the time is, a way of people getting into groups, organizing, uh, having a reference frame in which to contact clinicians for insurance in the States, so that's less than an issue in the UK where we have public health care. But HGPD doesn't seem like it's very helpful as a label in that sense because, because of the automatic association with drug use, people will never tell their employer about their HPPD. I mean, most doctors, despite the fact that HGPD might be totally comprehensible to the average general practitioner. If, if it's basically reducible to a, a broad visual syndrome in which drugs just happen to have been the trigger, then maybe it would make sense to a lot of therapists and psychiatrists. But because of the, there's this idea of this separate HPPD category, they're like, oh, what the fuck is HPPD? I've never heard of that. I can't, I'm sorry, I can't help you. So the HPPD label doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to fulfill the function of a psychiatric label in that sort of practical sense. So, yes, it's weird that I've come on to talk about HGPD, but I'm actually basically skeptical of all of it. Well, that's good, right? To be skeptical of yourself. Um, let's talk about harm reduction. Um, you know, some things that people can do to maybe reduce the occurrence of this. Um, I think something you mentioned is that um, a lot of people that develop this condition sort of had a prevalence for it already. Like, um and that sort of reminds me of schizophrenia, which is a really stigmatized condition. Um, 
in in some drugs they don't cause schizophrenia, but if you already have a history, it can bring those symptoms out. Um, cannabis can do that. Some psychedelics can do that. Um, so people that have a history of schizophrenia probably should avoid these drugs. And they are typically excluded from clinical trials. You know, they'll screen you for this stuff, uh, which is also problematic in its own right. I think some people that are schizophrenic, I don't think they consider it to be uh, a disparaging term. They want to be included in some of these trials. They Like, you're just excluding us. I don't know. It's a little bit controversial. Um, I don't know a lot about that. But what can people do to consider this, to prevent it from occurring? Uh, or if it does happen, like, what can you do to sort of treat it if there's anything? Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's hard because I, I, I can't give any concrete advice. Because as, as I mentioned earlier, a fundamental advice for any psychedelics and avoiding any risk is uh, basic set and setting and making sure that you do not have... One thing, I don't even want to say this without qualification, but you probably want to reduce the likelihood of having a very difficult experience, as they say, especially one that's traumatic. Because, you know, this here's another thing about HVPD is that people with complex PTSD can report visual effects that often aren't totally dissimilar to HVPD. So there's possibly a sense which people who have had very traumatic experiences with psychedelics are basically at least partially experiencing a complex psychedelic-induced PTSD. And so you basically want to make sure, probably, that you don't fuck yourself with a really bad trip. So basic set and setting. Right. And then here's something that, this, is, this has never really been particularly studied, but I really think it's crucial, is uh, like, the, like the three to five days, or maybe even up to 10 days after a trip. I think this is crucial for, you know, to take the neurophysiological lens, which I discussed skeptically earlier, but nevertheless, uh, to allow your, your, almost your visual cortex or your, your, your categories of perception and cognition and mood to, 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 to renormalize and readjust in a healthy way. I think that lots of things can be done, like uh, make sure you sleep well. I think, I think that's crucial. Um, I, I, I've, I've just seen too many cases of people developing HGPD after sleeping, not, not sleeping right after a trip or, or continuing to take drugs afterwards, whilst probably that they're in a neuroplastic state, that their perceptual categories are more malleable. Um, so pr- probably, uh, you know, avoid further drug taking after a big trip, av- avoid smoking weed, make sure you sleep well. Uh, this is my own sort of spin on things, but I think it's very important not to be too disembodied after a trip. And I know that embodiment is like a big thing in like the hippie, like, mental health world now but I, I think it does matter and i think that whilst you're in that sort of hyperplastic suggestible state it's important to basically avoid the risk of dissociation of developing a dissociative disorder like depersonalization derealization which i discussed earlier and in the, and to that extent something like avoiding spending too much time on your phone i think could be helpful i mean just in general as a safeguard but also as I said, particularly against the effects of disembodiment and dissociation. And perhaps something like uh, meditation could be helpful in the days afterwards to readjust and ground yourself. And uh, this, this is very speculative. But, you know, it, it, it brings to mind uh, the entropic brain hypothesis, which Robin Carhart Harris and his colleagues developed. So basically, I wonder if there's a sense in which 
you know, after a psychedelic experience, it, it creates an extraordinary amount of almost uh, entropy of like new chaotic energy in your body and mind altogether. And maybe HCPD is some sort of some form of effect in which, or these linking visual effects are some form of effect in which, to speak very crudely, almost the energy of the psychedelic experience has not been totally dissipated, uh, so to speak. Uh, like your nervous system is in, is left in almost a, a an up an upregulated state, and to that extent, you know all forms of integration practice or oh I'm not not an expert on this, but things that are that could be helpful to almost discharge or expend downregulate again a, a bit of a technical term. I'm not an expert. Your nervous system could be helpful, but if you do that, these visual effects. Just please don't don't freak out, because I think freaking out will just it, it just can't help. Yeah, the, the distress of these visual effects is what gives you HPPD. Like that's what differentiates just seeing shit after a trip and possibly being diagnosed. So just don't freak out. Um, if you can't possibly reframe these visuals or wonder whether you can live with them or kind of learn to like them or maybe just not be bothered by them if, if they truly are especially if they're really intense and significant uh perhaps be reassured by the fact that the this doesn't have to be any form of like life sentence there's a there's a there's a there's a statistic that cited sometimes that needs cooperation which is that 50 percent of hgpd is like they completely recover within five years and uh for me i mean i, th- I think that i can speak confidently that the intensity of the visual effects is basically waned, I think quite significantly since these first came on. I mean, just think back to the kind of shit I was seeing when I was 17, 18, 19. And now, like, it's definitely noticeable now, especially if I'm tired. Like, I especially noticed that this week when I hadn't slept too well. But it's not, it's nowhere near as intrusive as it once was. I suppose take, maybe take some comfort in that. But um, I think, yeah, the anxiety... I think that the anxiety fixation noticing HPPD feeding cycle is one you really want to break. And there are all sorts of relaxation practices that, that could be helpful. Uh, I, th- I think conventional psychotherapy could be very helpful, especially if you had a bad trip that set this off. You, I think that it's important and it's, it's to look at the particular, the particular contents of the psychedelic experience that that cause these effects. I think that there is meaning to be found in, in that trip. It, you shouldn't take the trip in abstract. Not, not least because HGPD can almost have emotional triggers. Like I've noticed that I've got a, an HGPD patient friend who basically, her HGPD is triggered specifically by interactions with her parents. Uh, and she has a bit of a troubled relationship with her parents. So it's almost as if there are specific emotional stresses, and which kind of emphasizes that this you know, as with all things of the mind, it's all very interconnected. And then therapeutic modalities like acceptance and commitment therapy or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, uh, these sorts of things to encourage an attitude of relaxation and acceptance about your new experience. And something in particular that I found helpful, this isn't any form of psychotherapy, was getting to grips with the work of uh, Eric Davis, the psychedelic commentator. And, And he has a whole, almost, would I call it philosophy or focus around the, the concept of weirdness and the idea that is that, you know, your new HVPD experience is pretty fucking weird, you know, and almost learning to, 
to lean into the weirdness and lean into your own strange uniqueness in that sense. And we're almost learning to, to love it if you can and be like, hey, I'm a bit of a weirdo now. You know, and that doesn't mean anything necessarily bad. It's just, it's just weird, you know? And that, that was helpful when I used to, I mean, I was at this conference, which I've mentioned a couple of times, I, I, in, the, in the lecture theatre, you know, I was seeing a lot of after images. I looked down at the, at the speakers and then looked down at my notepad and just thinking like, you know, I am at a psychedelics conference and I, and I wonder how many other people are experiencing this. This is just, this is pretty weird. This, this is weird what's happening right now. And I, th- I found that strangely comforting. But in terms of, I mean, probably more significantly, if, if this is really bothering me, you want proper help, I think that it can be useful to go to a psychiatrist and get like actual medication. So the, the, the ones that you might be prescribed most likely are clonopin, which is a benzo, or a lamotrigine, which is an anti-epileptic medication. I wonder if, I, I think this is the name of the drug, ketansinin or something like that. Um, it's the one that they the one that I think MindMed is trying to develop into um, a drug that will stop an LSD trip. You know, an LSD trip can last eight to 12 hours or even longer sometimes. And that's not very clinically applicable. So they want to give you LSD and then maybe give you this other drug. Um, It's sort of related to serotonin and it will stop the trip. Yeah. Catanserin. It's, it's used to study the serotonin system. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, remember, I think I got a press release about this when it was first announced, the trip killer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was sort of interesting. I, I pitched that to a couple of places and no one picked it up because it wasn't really news. Um, the drug has been used in psychedelics trials for a while. So they're, they're trying to like develop it and, I don't know, make it... Mind Med is interesting. That's all I'll say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, these medications can be very helpful for some people. Um, but at the same time, as with all psychiatric medications, it can involve substantial side effects. And, and benzos, I don't need to say this in a drugs podcast, uh, a, pro- a fairly problematic drug class. And uh, particularly because withdrawal from benzos can involve, I think I mentioned this at the start, can involve identical visual symptoms like the after images and the visual snow, which is curious. Um, and I suppose another thing I want to mention is that I, I could find three case reports of the use of psychotherapy for HGPD. Although two of these were from the 60s. So the, these wasn't called HGPD then, it was called flashbacks. Um, but basically what, they're just, what the, the case reports describe, it seems like it would be categorized today under HGPD. And what was fascinating was that addressing the destructive self-beliefs associated with these visual effects, especially, you know, I'm a weirdo, uh, I'm separate from everyone else, no one understands me. I'm a freak. I'm brain damaged. Addressing those destructive narratives, almost like I was a form of CBT, and essentially learning to accept and reframe and re-narrativize your experience, not only did it significantly reduce the distress of these patients, but it actually basically wiped out their visuals, which at the very least corroborates the idea that this might be driven substantially by anxiety. Uh, this isn't to say that everyone who gets therapy will cure their HGPD, but I think that it's certainly a sign that, you know, there's been a historic focus on pharmacotherapy and medications for HGPD. But I think psychotherapy can be profoundly helpful and it almost needs emphasis when you realize that people can have these visual effects and not be, not be bothered by them. So there's almost a sense in which it has to be an issue for psychology. Yeah. 
Unfortunately, um, you know, this kind of gets back to the issue of people having access to mental health services. And I know you're in the UK, so it's a little bit better than in the US, which is a huge understatement. Um, but yeah, I mean, people who are taking psychedelics that they bought online or from some guy at a rave may not have a therapist. And that's just sort of the reality in America. I know you're working on this documentary. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So I'm um, a documentary, uh, we're working on a documentary called HGPD. Although the, the current working title, although um, it might change, is HGPD Stuck in a Distorted World. I was thinking of changing it to HGPD when the world still looks different. Because I think it seems to be, it's a, bit more, it's a bit more value neutral. But basically, it's, uh, it's a documentary that's being part produced or funded by the Perception Restoration Foundation, which is the nonprofit I work with. And I'm conscious that I've barely mentioned that in this podcast. Um, I, I, perhaps I'll give them a shout out at the end and discuss what we're up to. But anyway, yeah, this, this documentary, uh, it features four main participants, one of whom is Andrew Callahan from All Gas and No Breaks and Channel 5. Uh, and he has lived with lingering visual effects from a mushroom trip when he was 14 for the last, he's, he's 25 now, so it's 11 years. And he also describes living with the effects of the dissociative condition I mentioned earlier, depersonalization, derealization. Uh, other participants, we, we've added a new participant in a lady called Sherry DeCosta, who is uh, an ex-professional ballet dancer in Australia and now filmmaker whose son tragically committed suicide after 10 years of struggle with HPPD and associated mental health conditions. Um, we got an, uh, a lovely woman called Amanda who took LSD believe only once and ex no, experienced HVPD and then Jay, a fellow who has very substantial HVPD and then a bunch of scientists, including Matt Baggett, including Henry Abraham, who was kind of the, the innovator or the first person to, to truly document the, these experiences and get them codified under HVPD. Uh, and I suppose, and, and the release date is uncertain. We hoped for June. But our editor, unfortunately, burdened by a significant work schedule, so maybe it won't be in the summer. But we basically, we just want to make sure we do it well. Because as I mentioned earlier, you know, the HGPD is such a delicate issue. And A, I would hate for the comment section to just be consumed with people being like, on the one hand, you know, dude, I see trails sometimes and it doesn't fucking bother me. This documentary is bullshit. Or maybe people going... This is anti-drug propaganda. This is sensationalist. This is, this is just say no propaganda. I would hate that to happen. But at the same time, I'd also hate to, for at least my attempts at subtlety and nuance to be lost on the HGPD community. You might describe me as being like, yo, why, why are you making out HGPD isn't a bad thing? I've been fucked by HGPD for the last 15 years. So you, you kind of really got to do it well. So we'll only release it if it works, you know, if it satisfies the criteria of nuance that we think are important. Because it's almost changed in my head, especially because this time two years ago, when I first became involved in the documentary project, it was my understanding of HVPD was actually very rudimentary. Like I, I thought, yeah, HVPD, it's a totally confirmed thing. Like you can take psychedelics and basically overexcite your serotonin system and it's always terrible 
And so the idea of calling it HPPD stuck in a distorted world seemed very reasonable. We've got to raise the alarm, you know? But no, as I've, as I've start, started to learn more and more about it, it's become more and more subtle. Um, so yeah, that, that's the documentary. And it's exciting. I think that, as we mentioned earlier, you know, psychedelics, there's so much positivity now and, and adding some nuanced negativity to the picture, I think would be, will be helpful, especially, you know, someone with Andrew, like Andrew Callahan, who's well-liked and he's clearly not some, you know, Republican, Nancy Reagan stooge. She's a very intelligent journalist with a significant purchase with young people. I think that it could be, if it's done well, it could be a valuable contribution documentary. Yeah. I, I really like what you're talking about with all this recontextualizing the experience and like sort of accepting it and, you know, integrating it. Um, and I, I think it's important for people to who have this experience, have this condition to understand that they're not alone. Um, there are lots of people. It, it seems like it's a small, small percentage of people, but we don't really know because we're not doing enough data on this. But there are people out there that actually have this and they shouldn't feel alone. They should they should connect with other people that have it. And, and I know there's a Reddit group with nearly uh, 10,000 members at, you know, RHPPD. But but yeah, um, I think this is good information. And it's such a it's such a hard needle to thread um, because you're going to get pushed back on so many different sides. And you don't want to present this as just like this horror story. This isn't reefer madness. But we also have to talk about the reality of these drugs. They don't always help everybody. Sometimes they can be side effects. And we sort of have to factor that into everything. Bottom line for me is always that uh, people have access to treatment for their health. And sometimes that's psychedelics and sometimes it's something else. Um, so, Ed, where can people find you? Uh, where can you find me? I suppose my website might be a good, might be a good place. Uh, it's my name, Ed Prado. And then dot journoportfolio.com, which I guess is it's a bit more unwieldy than finding on Twitter. But nevertheless, I think it's more important people check out the charity I work with, the Perception Restoration Foundation, which is perception. The URL is simple, it's just perception.foundation. And for any HGPD is listening who are seeking help, look out for our ever-growing list of HPPD-informed clinicians. This includes psychiatrists, therapists counsellors, uh, I think a couple of social workers as well, who know about HVPD and are ready and contactable. And this, there's people from Australia, the UK, across the US. Uh, so check out our specialist directory. And for people who kind of want to have uh, an accessible, albeit detailed overview of everything we know or don't know about HVPD, then check out our information guide, which is freely downloadable on the website. And feel free to use it however you want. Um, and another thing is, uh, we've got a couple of studies which are worth mentioning and that we're currently fundraising for. Well, there's been a bit of a fundraising challenge amid the recent economic climate. One is a neuroimaging study by Macquarie University in Australia. And the other one is with the Melbourne study, I believe, taking it through to its final stages with this visual processing tool. So any, any well-moneyed psychedelic philanthropists get in touch <laughs> yeah yeah uh well thank you so much for coming on the show it's really been great to talk to you about this, yeah, was, this has been fun. and uh you know apply apply some nuance to this issue because i mean 
if anything, the psychedelics can teach us, it's about nuance, right? Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Troy Farah, Christopher Marath, and Zachary Siegel. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can find out more at narcocast.com and support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. Patrons get free stickers, which are personally mailed to them, and can request a shout-out on the show. And now, Patreons can even get 30% off merch in our new store, which is at narcocast.myshopify.com. We have t-shirts and coffee mugs, one that says, there are drugs in here, which is awesome. More stuff will be added soon. As always, we're so grateful to the folks that make this show possible. A little goes a long way, guys, so thanks for helping us out. We're ad-free, and we want to keep it that way. If Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by just spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast, advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Glass Boy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, alias Nomad, drug-using producer. You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. I guess we have an Instagram now, too. Those are the best ways to try and contact us if you have a suggestion, complaint, or just want to tell us nice things. SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. That's about everything. Have a good week, guys.